I've read verse 1 before many times, as I'm sure you have, but something struck me this time as I read it. And I want to explore that with you this morning. Uh, There's too much in this one verse to cover it all. Uh, It it would take hours, and I probably would have a riot on my hands. Uh, So we're just going to focus on one phrase, one phrase out of this verse 1 of Romans chapter 12 this morning. Let me read the verse to you. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We'll stop there. The phrase that I want to focus on this morning is living and holy sacrifice. Some of your translations will render it a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Either way, the idea is the same. There is some type of sacrifice that Paul is describing here that is living. And it is in that phrase that we have a tremendous mystery on our hands, my friends, because, uh, for one thing, we don't understand the word sacrifice the same way that the Apostle Paul would have understood it. And we'll get to that in a minute. And then once we do gain an understanding of how he would have viewed the word, that presents us with a dilemma. Because this phrase is a contradiction. It is what you might call an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. It is a conundrum, an enigma. Throw out adjectives. It doesn't make sense. So we want to explore that this morning and attempt to find out what did Paul mean, what did God mean through Paul, and how does that impact us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, I ask you now to quicken your word as it goes forth from these printed pages and my lips into minds, thoughts, hearts, life, daily practice. Quicken it, Father. Make it powerful. Imbue it with all of your character and all of your majesty and all of your might that is the very reality that we live in. The very air that we breathe is woven by you. You stand apart from time itself and you hold all of creation in the palm of your hand. Without your sustaining power, we would cease to exist. These are weighty matters, O oh God. The weightiest of matters that we can possibly delve into in our lives. May we see it as such. Please reveal it as such, Lord. The truth of the Word of God translated for us into our own language, preserved by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in spite of the evil schemes of men to squelch it and suppress it. This is all a testament to your great power and the great reverence and respect and devotion that we ought to have for your word. As Dave said, it is our, one of our core values for a very, very good reason. May I be accurate in unfolding it this morning. May I be free from pride. May I be filled with the humility of Christ. And may these, my brothers and sisters, receive it with earnestness and a fierce determination to see it done no matter what it says. In your name I pray. Amen.
Well, before we get to Romans, we need to consider the context in which it is placed. Uh, The book of Romans is really an interesting work. Uh, Paul, in it, he begins in chapter 1 with an introduction. He greets the church in Rome, and he expresses his fierce desire to meet them and to uh, fellowship with them. He also gives them his credentials as an apostle. Uh, He gives them his credentials as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then from chapter 1, the latter half of chapter 1, all the way through verse 5, he proceeds with uh, an absolutely astonishing defense and explanation of the gospel. And he leaves really no stone unturned in this. He begins with the utter, complete, and total depravity of mankind. The utter sinfulness of man. And then he lays out the fact that God, through the nation of Israel, delivered the Mosaic Law uh, as an evidence, if you will, of the inability of mankind to measure up to the standard by which God measures all of reality, and that is his own nature. The law serves as a condemnation of sinful man. And then, Paul, not to leave us hanging, he goes into the, the wonder of how we are justified purely through the grace, the saving grace of Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrificial work on the cross. And it is purely through faith, not of works, that we are justified. And Paul delights, he exalts in this. But then he realizes that he's dug himself uh, for certain camps that would uh, accuse him of this. He's dug himself a little bit of a theological hole. Because he has pushed the idea of justification by faith hard. He has made it clear that you earn your salvation in no way, shape, or form. And so there are those who might say, well, Paul, you've told me I don't have to do anything. Why should I work? Why should I strive? In fact, Paul, you've told me that God's grace expands to cover sin. So why don't we all sin that the grace of God may expand all the more? And Paul uh, eviscerates that argument in chapter 6 through 8 by showing that no, we who have died to sin can by no means continue in it. And he looks at the disparity between our old man and our new man. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he sets up the position for these Gentile, mostly Gentile believers in Rome. He sets up their position and the condition of the Jews and the marvelous working of the grace and mercy of God in that God intended for the hardening of the Jews so that he might save the Gentiles. And then in reciprocal fashion, he takes the salvation of the Gentiles, uses it to make the Jews jealous, and so saves them too. It's a miraculous tapestry of the plan of God that Paul lays out. And at the end of chapter 11, he practically explodes with thanksgiving and exaltation in verses 33 to 36. And then we come to chapters 12 through 15, where he lays out for these believers in Rome... Uh, other believers throughout the church age at that time, and obviously all believers down through the centuries. He lays out for them how they are to live their lives. Christian living. What does this look like? What are the nuts and the bolts of how you are to live this Christian life? And he begins in verse 1. He says, therefore, that's the hinge, that's the pivot point, when he switches from things that have happened to these people in the past, things that God have done, And now he switches into things in the present that they are at least partially responsible for. 
And he proceeds for the next four chapters to lay out how to live the Christian life. But in verse 1, he sets the tone. Verse 1 and 2, really. But like I said, we're just going to focus on verse 1. He sets the tone for all of this Christian living. This is the framework or the foundation by which we need to understand how to live the Christian life. And if we don't get the foundation secure, as any of you know who are involved in construction, if you don't get the foundation firm and square, the whole house is going to be off base. So we need to make sure that we understand this verse, and in particular this morning, this phrase, living sacrifice or living and holy sacrifice. Uh, And there's two reasons why I think that uh, we don't fully understand that. First, let's look at a definition of the word sacrifice. Actually, three definitions. And this is from Merriam-Webster. The first one is, the act of giving up something that you want to keep, especially in order to get or to do something else or to help someone. Okay? Definition two, an act of killing a person or animal in a religious ceremony as an offering to please a god. Definition three, a person or animal that is killed in a sacrifice. So it's clear that definitions 2 and 3 are linked in that they are the theological working out of this word sacrifice. The one, uh, definition 2, is a verb meaning to sacrifice something. Definition 3 is a noun referring to the thing or the person or the animal being sacrificed. But definition 1 is far different. There's an aura of pragmatism in definition 1 that says something like this. I will sacrifice on behalf of my spouse... For some reason, either because I want her to love me more or I want peace in my home or I believe it's the right thing to do. There's a pragmatic element to this first definition. And I believe that is what is in our minds, uh, the way we think when we in 21st century America use the term sacrifice. I don't think when we use the word sacrifice to each other, we're talking about slaughtering an animal. I think we're talking about definition one, a pragmatic approach to sacrifice. And maybe we even have the right motives. We do it because we recognize the debt that we owe Christ, and so we want to sacrifice to others. Maybe we even have the right motives, but we still don't have the mindset that Paul would have. Remember, he was a biological Jew. By his own admission, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You might say he was one of the strictest of the Pharisaical sect in holding to the tenets of Judaism. He was as zealous as you could possibly be in being a Jew. And he carried that zeal into his persecution of the church, if you recall, until his conversion on the Damascus Road. And then he turned that zeal right around and poured it into uh, this new sect called the Way, the Christianity, as it was known at that time. And I don't believe that there was any hypocrisy in Paul. Uh, I believe that the evidence supports the fact that he was authentic in his zeal. He was authentic both in his desire to be as Jewish of a Jew as he could be, as well as as Christian of a Christian as he could be. So I think it's reasonable to assume, because he was free from hypocrisy for the most part, that when he used the word sacrifice, he was thinking as a Jew. He was thinking in terms of the sacrificial Old Testament system of slaughtering animals. But in fact, we don't have to assume that. He gives us a hint back in chapter 3 of the same book. Romans 3, verse 25. Paul, in referencing Christ, says this, "...whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith." That propitiation word, it's one of those fancy shun words. It just means a scapegoat, a surrogate, uh, someone taking a penalty on my behalf. 
They are my propitiation. They propitiate for me. It is very clear that by using these terms and these phrases and placing Christ in this context, Paul was referring back to the Levitical Old Testament sacrificial system. And we can see a picture of what he was talking about back in the book of Leviticus. Go ahead and turn with me there. We'll be in Leviticus and Deuteronomy for a few minutes, and then we'll head back to the New Testament. Leviticus chapter 1, starting in verse 3. This is the Lord giving instructions for a man who was bringing an offering to the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. The Lord says this in verse 3 of chapter 1. If his offering, this man, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Here's what's going on. The man would bring one of his animals. He would lay his head on that animal's head or his hand on that animal's head. That was symbolic of the fact that the man was recognizing his sinfulness and he was making a public statement as per God's instructions that yes, I am a sinner and by God's grace and mercy, I am passing my sin onto the head of this animal and then its throat would be slashed, the blood was splashed onto the altar, it was poured around the base of it, the meat was cut up and offered up uh, by fire as a pleasing aroma to God. It was very, it, there was much symbolism in it. It was purely God's grace and mercy that passed over the sin But the act of going to the tent of meeting and following God's instructions symbolized that the man bought into God's instructions and bought into his own sinfulness. That's the exact same thought process that Paul was using by referring to Christ as a propitiation on our behalf. He represents those animals. His throat was proverbially slashed. His blood was splashed upon the altar once for all. Now... With that in mind, that presents us with a real problem because in a Jewish mindset, sacrifice always involves death. Always. God makes it very clear in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin, what you earn by being sinful and committing acts of sin is death. That is what you earn as your, your wages by sinning. Sacrifice in a Jewish mindset, and I believe the way Paul meant it, always involves death. So then what in the world does he mean by a living sacrifice? You can't have a living sacrifice. It has to die. It's a contradiction in terms. Well, I think there are two views that we could take with this. Uh, The one is more of a high-level symbolic view. And we can see that in 1 Peter 3.18, where he says, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And in that sense, Paul might be saying, and I think he is in, in one sense, he is saying, you no longer have to die. There no longer has to be a death to pay the penalty for your sin, because Christ already did it for you once for all. So therefore, you, Christians, live to the glory of God. Live your lives as a worship and sacrifice to the Lord. That's more of the high-level view. But I think there's another element here. I think there's an element that is at once perhaps more broad because it encompasses every facet of our day-to-day lives and also more penetrating because it leaves no area of those lives unturned. And to dig out that this other 
meaning that I think Paul had here. It's going to take a few minutes, and we're going to have to look at a few passages. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. There are two trains of thought in the Old Testament that I see that speak to this issue of a living sacrifice and what Paul might mean by it. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 7. And in this, Moses is relating to the children of Israel uh, the requirements, the prescriptions, the prohibitions by which they are to live. This was their legal system. This was their constitution, if you will. And in verse 7 of chapter 17, uh, he gives instructions for a man who is guilty of the sin of idolatry, a man or a woman who has prostituted themselves with false gods. And he says, The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. Here's a key phrase. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Flip over two chapters to 19. Chapter 19, verse 19. In this case, we have a man who's committed perjury. He has falsely accused a fellow Israelite of something that he didn't do, and he's been caught. And God says, Then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Again, we see, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Two more chapters, chapter 21 and verse 21. This time we have a disobedient child. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. Kids, be glad you don't live in ancient Israel. So you shall remove the evil from your midst and all Israel will hear of it and fear. Now what's going on here? Why is the Lord so doggedly fixed and determined to purge evil from Israel. In our cultured, modern, democratic American mindset, we might say that's barbaric. That's an atrocity. Why are you being so strict? Ease up, God. Why is he doing this? Well, hold your thought there. And you can either turn with me or I'll just read it from Proverbs 23, the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of the preacher. Proverbs 23, starting in verse 13, Solomon says this. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. The prophet Habakkuk, he echoes this sentiment in chapter 1, verse 13 of his book. God has just revealed to him that Judah is about to be disciplined harshly by the Babylonian Empire. And one of the things that Habakkuk says in response to the Lord is, we shall not die. Now, what do Habakkuk and Solomon mean here? Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher from the 19th century, he wrote a book in 1888 called Twilight of the Idols. And in this book, he uh, delivered a quote. He said, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. You've probably heard of that. It, It has been popularized in recent decades by other men. Well, Nietzsche was going after sort of a rugged, humanistic individualism that says, boy, I'm a macho man, and if it doesn't knock me to the ground, it's going to make me a real man. I'm going to stand up and be tall, and it's all about me. Is that what Solomon and Habakkuk had in mind? Absolutely not. What they were getting at was, the only way to produce true life is through the discipline of God. The reality is that although we might see the purging of evil from the midst of Israel, and the disciplining of a child, again, some of our more uh, uh, cultured, I say that disparagingly, cultured folks in America would say, don't discipline your children. You'll warp their character. We might see these things as destructive. 
or barbaric, but the reality is that that is the only way to cure the infection of sin. That is the only way to eliminate sin from the nation of Israel is by purging it out of them. That is the only way to train up righteous character in a child, although their salvation is ultimately up to the Lord. Our job as parents is to train them up in the way they should go. And so the reality is that God understands and that we would do well to adhere to is that in order to produce godliness, in order to cure infections, you must have a cutting away of the infection. You must have a a merciless almost and ruthless determination to cut it out, to get rid of it. Okay, that's what's going on here. Now, how does that apply to a living sacrifice? Because... It's no different with our Christian life. The way that you are to be a living sacrifice before the Lord, the way that you are to be both alive and a sacrifice at the same time is to cut the sin out of your life. It's a very simple equation. Unlike the Old Testament sacrificial system where animals were slaughtered, now life is lived, the death has already taken place, sin is what is sacrificed, And godliness is what is produced. Life is lived, sin is sacrificed, and godliness is what is produced. We see echoes of this same thought pattern in the teachings of Christ. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 29. Christ said this, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now Christ was not preaching a doctrine of (laughs) self-mutilation. He was not instructing his disciples to go around slicing off their limbs. He was making a point that exactly echoes the sentiments of Solomon, Habakkuk, and Moses in unfolding uh, the New Testament wisdom that you must purge the evil from your life. You must be merciless. You must be ruthless. Do not make the mistake of playing and toying with your sin. It is not your friend. It is your enemy. And it will destroy you. And in order to get rid of it, you must be determined to cut it out of your life. Think about it in medical terms. You're probably familiar with the term gangrene, okay? It's not used a whole lot anymore, although uh, aspects of it still exist. You, uh, you may have heard in the news a couple of years ago a woman named Amy Copeland. Uh, she was diagnosed with a flesh-eating bacteria called necrotizing fasciitis. And ultimately they had to amputate uh, quite a number of her appendages. Uh, necrotizing fasciitis is a form of gangrene. They're related medically. And what this type of condition does is it destroys living tissue and makes it dead and then spreads and destroys more living tissue and spreads and destroys more living tissue. And in severe cases, uh, it's typically treated with antibiotics, but in severe cases, the only medical option available with our current technology is to amputate. The idea is that if my hand gets infected with gangrene, and it's down here in my fingers, before it spreads up to my wrist, you slice off the hand. And in sacrificing the appendage, you salvage 
the remainder of the body and thus the life of the person. You get the idea. It's no different here. Sin is an infection. It will spread and destroy you. Let me show you what sin will do. Turn back to me me full circle to the book of Romans. Chapter 7. Romans 7. Starting in verse 10, Paul is referring to the law, the Mosaic law. And he says, This commandment, or the law, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Now, those who are covered by the blood of Christ cannot have that inheritance, cannot have that salvation stolen. Paul himself makes that very clear in this same book in chapter 8. But if you toy with your sin, if you manage it, if you keep it in a corner and tell yourself that it won't hurt anyone, it can't rob you of your salvation, but it will steal your joy. Christ said that the devil is like a thief who breaks into the sheepfold. He doesn't come in by the door because the, the shepherd is there, Christ. He sneaks in over the wall in the night and attempts to steal the sheep. He will attempt to steal your joy. He will attempt to steal your victory. He will attempt to steal your satisfaction in Christ. He will attempt to make the Christian life as dull and gray and pointless and pathetic as he possibly can. And in our cultural Christian atmosphere of easy believism in America, I think that is very prevalent. It is very prevalent in my own heart to manage my sin, to tell myself it's okay, to flirt with temptation, if you will. Look at the attitude that God has towards sin. Next chapter, Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. God did not fool Himself into thinking that sin was His friend. He recognized it for the enemy that it is, and He condemned it in the flesh. Notice what He tells us to do in verse 13 of the same chapter. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is no room in the Christian life, friends, for anything other than putting to death the deeds of the flesh and striving with everything in you to live a sin-free life. I thought of a few examples. Um, And if I'm going to offend you, it will be now. Be forewarned. I thought of a few examples. And if I could think of an example that would pierce through to the heart of every person in this room, including my own, I would do it. But for the sake of time and because I can't read your minds, I picked four. So if these examples don't apply to you, please fill in the blanks with what does. Christian men, it is insufficient, it is completely unacceptable, and you are insulting the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, and I am, if we permit ourselves to fall prey to the temptation to lust. It is especially relevant in this summertime at the beach and the pool. I'm going to be blunt, guys. I'm not going to mince words here. You know how this works. You're at the beach or the pool. A scantily clad female body passes in front of your eyes. You can't do anything about that first look. But then your eyes follow. And you permit your gaze to linger where it ought not to linger. 
you are insulting the name of Christ. And believe me, I understand how difficult it is to fight this temptation. I just came back from Myrtle Beach last week. And if there is a viler cesspool of the temptation to lust on all this planet than a beach in the middle of summer in America, I don't know what it is. Christian wives, it is insufficient, it is completely unacceptable, and you are insulting the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, Christ on the cross, if you attempt to usurp the authority of your husband in the home. I understand that he doesn't deserve your respect sometimes, maybe all the time. I understand that he may not be worthy of submission to. I often am not. But that is completely irrelevant. It is God alone who has given him his position, his job, his responsibility, and you have no right or prerogative or even ability to take it away from him. Christian children, teenagers, it is insufficient. It is completely unacceptable. And you are insulting the sacrifice of Christ on the cross if you rebel against your parents' authority. And I don't care whether this is an open, bald-faced rebellion where you visibly uh, talk back to them and commit acts that are clearly in defiance, or whether it's sort of a passive-aggressive type of rebellion where outwardly you're compliant, outwardly you're placid and obedient, but inside your heart seethes with anger and rebellion and hatred at submission. Understand children, that it's not your parents you're rebelling against. You're rebelling against the one who gave them the authority that they have, which is Almighty God. And you are shaking your fist in the face of one who Christ said, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I urge you to be cautious with your cavalier attitude toward your parents. Christians of all ages, men, women, children, it is insufficient You notice a pattern here? It is completely unacceptable and you are insulting the sacrifice of Christ on the cross if you allow yourself to become addicted to vices. And I'm not just talking about the obvious ones, drugs, alcohol. I'm talking about work. I'm talking about uh, family. I'm talking about self. I'm talking about spouse. I'm talking about children. I'm talking about food. I don't care what it is. Those are all created things. And if you worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, as Paul warns against in Romans 1, then please understand that you are guilty of the same sin of idolatry that the nation of Israel was when they frenziedly slashed themselves in worship of of Baal, when they fornicated with disgusting acts of debauchery in reverence for Asherah, when they took their children and burned them alive out of an insane desire to get a blessing from Moloch. If you permit any created thing to take a position of preeminence over and above the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're guilty of the same sin. And I say that so forcefully because I see it so visibly in my own heart. Please understand, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm at anyone other than myself, except for the wife bit. I'm not a wife. So, you must be ruthless and merciless with your sin. You must be determined to cut it out of your heart and your mind and your life. Now, having said all that, I need to make two clarifications, uh, two admonitions, if you will, before we leave, to make sure that I'm not misunderstood. And I'll read it and then I'll explain it. The first admonition is this. Satan is a liar. Sin is his principal weapon. Therefore, to give in to a fear of the pain that will come from putting sin to death 
is to believe in and live by a lie. Let me explain what I mean by that. And I think children, small children, are a perfect analogy. If a child gets a splinter, it hurts, it irritates, and it is uncomfortable to remove it, right? Um, When I was a child, my mother loved to torment me by taking a needle and getting it red hot with a, a lighter or a match to kill germs. She had good intentions. And then digging around in my skin for the splinter. It was a horrific experience. But uh, it, it is uncomfortable. That's the bottom line. It is uncomfortable to go through that. But ultimately, by removing the splinter, what? There is greater joy. There is pleasure on the other side of the pain, right? If you get a cut on your skin... Nowadays, we have fancy antiseptic and antibiotic ointments that you smear on, but when I was a kid, you would pour hydrogen peroxide, and it would burn if you had enough germs in there. And it was unpleasant, and I hated it, and my children hate it. But if you do not do that, then you run the risk of infection. You run the risk of a worse problem than the temporary uncomfortableness. The idea here is that children lack the foresight to look past the temporary discomfort to the joy and the pleasure and the euphoria that, it, that awaits them on the other side. In the same way, in the Christian life, sin is Satan's principal weapon. And he is the father of lies. Therefore, anything that sin tells you is automatically a hollow and deceptive philosophy. And sin will tell you, oh, it's okay. Leave me alone. It will hurt too much. You will be miserable if you try to get rid of me. You'll be like one of those monks in the Middle Ages who sat alone in his cell and whipped his back and uh, you know, tore it to shreds out of a desire to atone for his own sins. You're not going to have any fun if you get rid of sin. Just, just tuck me off in the corner. I'm not hurting anyone. You only do this in your home doesn't affect anyone else. It's okay. That's the lie that sin will tell you. And if you are to believe that lie, then understand that you are acting like a spiritual child. Just as a child lacks the foresight to see the health that will come on the other side of temporary discomfort, you are failing to understand that the temporary discomfort of eliminating your sin will be far eclipsed by a joy an exaltation in Christ Jesus. Multiple places in the New Testament, it speaks of spiritual maturity. It speaks of uh, people who, although they should be ready for the solid food of the Word of God, they are operating as children, spiritual children, who are still uh, needing their mother's milk. I don't mean to be rude, but that is what you're acting like if you do not take a ruthless and merciless view of your sin and mine. Admonition number two. Again, I'll read it. Although self-discipline is a critical component of Christian living, never forget that our victory will be won by the Spirit. You should still be in the book of Romans. I didn't ask you to turn from there. Notice in verse 13 that we already read. Chapter 8, verse 13. Notice how Paul phrases this. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit... Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that it is all of you. I've been preaching hard for works, for effort, for cutting out sin. But it must be accompanied by a full and present 
unceasing realization of the enablement of the Spirit upon which you are dependent. If you do not rely upon the Spirit, you will fail. You are doomed to failure. There is a merging, a dovetailing of both the element of self-effort and and spirit reliance. So don't make the mistake of thinking this is all about works. Now, having said all that, how does this work? What would this look like in our everyday lives? Well, Paul, thankfully, gives us a beautiful picture of it. You can turn if you'd like, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 24, he says something like this, and Paul loves the metaphor of a race. He loves the metaphor of athletics. And he says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And he says it almost as if, don't you know? This is obvious, folks. Don't you understand this? And then he says, so run that you may obtain it. He says, every runner or every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In Philippians chapter 3, 12 through 14, he says, Brethren, not that I have already obtained it, but this meaning perfection or completion or maturity in Christ, but this I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's attitude was that of an athlete, a determined runner who was absolutely committed to run his race to the absolute best of his ability. And when he fell on his knees, he was determined to crawl as long as he had breath in his lungs. And when he fell down and couldn't crawl anymore, he was determined to reach out, straining for the prize of heaven. And all the while, crying out, screaming for the help of the Spirit. That is the attitude that we are to have as a Christian. It is an attitude of a runner who is determined to run in such a way that he will win his race. If that is not our attitude, brothers and sisters, then we don't look like a New Testament Christian. And we may very well not be one. Now, let me say one more thing and we'll be done. Human wisdom would tell us that you're out of your mind, Paul. (laughs) These are mutually exclusive issues. They're mutually exclusive. They're not compatible. You can't have self-effort and running a race and relying on the Spirit at the same time. How does that work? That doesn't make any sense. But divine wisdom tells us that not only are they are mutually compatible, and not only that, but they are reality. Turn with me one more verse. Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> this is, from a human perspective, there is an almost an audacity in what God says here. Look at this. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Look at this. In verse 14 he says... For sin shall not 
be master over you. Grace. So don't let it be master over you. Will. It's not going to master you, so don't let it master you. It's mind-boggling. You would think that doesn't make any sense. But in the mind of God, it harmonizes perfectly. And frankly, we need to stop worrying about it. It's true. Sin won't master you. So don't let it master you. Determine that you're going to ruthlessly and mercilessly cut the sin out of your life at the same time determining that you're going to do this solely by the enablement of and cooperation with the Holy Spirit. That is how I believe we are to live as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. And if we don't live in that manner, then the whole rest of our Christian life is going to be warped and twisted and miscued. And as I said earlier, we don't look very much like the Apostle Paul. We don't look very much like his description of the Christian life. So we may not be a Christian. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, this uh, is a, a hard teaching that you teach. As many experienced when they walked with you, Lord, you accept no room for other pursuits higher than yourself. You do not accept second place. There's no room for other passions when one seeks to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, Lord, you taught us that our love and our devotion and our living of life to the glory of God should be of such an extreme nature that by comparison it appears that we hate our mother, our father, our wife, our brother, our sister, our children. You expect and command and desire nothing less than complete and total devotion. And because of this teaching, many turn from you, Lord. Many walked away, the scriptures say. But then you turned to our friend, the Apostle Peter, and you said, do you want to leave also? And he perhaps thought for a minute, and he said, where else would we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. Father, this morning my prayer is that we would have the attitude of Peter and of Paul and of every one of the apostles, but most especially the attitude and the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose very food was to do the will of him who sent him, his heavenly Father. May we live our lives to the glory of God. May we run our race. May we get off of the sidelines and cast away the shackles of easy cultural believism that is so prevalent in our country. May we seek earnestly the true and living gospel and the blessed assurance of Jesus Christ and the joy that is to come when we get past the temporary discomfort of the cutting away of sin. May you be glorified in our lives.
In Christ's name.